Okay, uh, everyone. Uh, I realized before the lot, we're going to get going with the final uh, closing speech now. Um, so if we could just settle down, uh, get back into our seats. The sooner we, uh, the sooner we finish the session, the sooner the drinks reception. So um, I realized before the the last event that uh, I didn't introduce myself. Uh, my name's Ryan Bourne. Um, I occupy the R. Evan Scharf Chair for the Public Understanding of Economics here at Cato, and uh, I actually put together the program for this conference. We were originally supposed to be doing this conference in May 2020, and a little thing called the pandemic uh, obviously put pay to that, but I'm delighted that we've been able to do it, and uh, uh, very, very thankful for the generosity of the Soul Freedom Trust who've provided the resources for us um, to do this. Before I introduce our final speaker for the day, I'd like to also thank the Cato conference team and the building staff here for all their hard work to make today possible. They've kept us well fed and well watered through the day. Uh, I'm sure you'll agree we've had some fascinating panels and speeches, which I think have really captured the essence of the tumultuous political time we're living in and the economic risks and opportunities that that brings for government policy. After this closing speech, I invite you all to join us to continue those conversations over uh, drinks downstairs. But before we get to that, I'm delighted to welcome Doug Holtz Ekin to give this keynote address, which is entitled The National Conservative Threat to a Free Economy. Doug is the president and founder of the American Action Forum. He's one of the most prolific economists and writers in the public policy space that I've ever come across in Washington, D.C. and elsewhere. In fact, in preparation for this event, I examined his morning emails over the week before I was writing this, and in that period, he covered topics as wide-ranging as the Jones Act, manufacturing jobs, inflation, antitrust policy, the minimum wage, and several others. What's more, each post was crisply written and dripping with insights, making Doug a must-read for policy wonks and legislators across the political spectrum. Doug has an extremely strong pedigree where economics and public policy are concerned. He was an academic at Columbia University and then Syracuse. He has served in a variety of influential policy positions. Between 2001 and 2002, he was the chief economist of the President's Council of Economic Advisors. He was then the sixth director of the Congressional Budget Office, providing budgetary and policy analysis to the US Congress. Uh, during 2007 and 2008, he was director of domestic and economic policy for the John McCain presidential campaign. Um, and after a role with a, a federal commission, he was then founded the American Action Forum, which describes itself as a center-right think tank on economic, domestic, and fiscal policy issues. It's difficult to think of anyone as plugged into the intersection between economics and politics, and I was deeply impressed with Doug's insights when I first saw him speak at Nobel Prize winner Ned Phelps's annual conference up at Columbia a few years ago on the dangers of socialism. Uh, I was there on a panel that day alongside someone called Lena Khan, whatever happened to her. And given that experience of seeing Doug uh, that day, as well as the knowledge that Doug is out there on the front line debating economic issues uh, in the media as well as in Congress, 
I couldn't think of anyone better to offer us some concluding thoughts on the ascendant national conservative movement within uh, and indeed beyond the Republican Party. So Doug, welcome to the Cato Institute and the floor is yours. Well, um, thank you, Ryan, um, uh, for the invitation, um, for the very gracious reading of my resume. Um, uh, my mother has a very different reading of my resume. Um, she is one of a long line of high school teachers, and in 2000, I had reached the pinnacle of professional accomplishment. I was a tenured full professor with an endowed chair and chairman of the Department of Economics at Syracuse University. What could be better? Since then, I've been a government bureaucrat, a political hack, and now I've started a think tank, which is a glorified over 21 daycare center. And she's quite nervous about my prospects. <laughs> so thank you for providing some legitimacy to what I do. Um, uh, I want to congratulate Ryan Cato in general uh, for just a fantastic conference um, with uh, the, the sort of unique combination of a, a great set of speakers talking about the right topic at exactly the right time. And, and you don't always get that. So um, the pandemic did you a favor. I think, I think the, the topic's ripe. And um, I, I'm really pleased to have the chance to sort of discuss the, these very important issues of what is the framework for thinking about uh, economics and politics and the political economy of what the United States does. Um, I have no idea what I'm going to say. I have struggled desperately to, to figure this out. Um, but but I, I thought, as a matter of discipline, the issue of what is the threat from this sort of nationalist conservative style of thinking and policymaking uh, should be done relative to something, right? That's what economics is, it's a, a set of relative choices. So I wanna talk a little bit about well-trodden uh, 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 paths, which are the competitive economic model on which so many of us rely. And um, a, a real bonus to speaking here I wanna point out is that um, I don't do PowerPoint, I don't do slides, because I did my first PowerPoint in front of then President George W. Bush. He discovered the error in it, and I gave up PowerPoint in 2001. But <laughs> I have everything I need on the slides. I've got individual liberty, free markets, which are gonna generate limited government, and I wanna talk about that, so that's the starting point. Right? So, so we all know how um, uh, we, we sort of talk to um, uh, people about the sort of basics of the, the idealized form of competitive markets. What do you do? Well, um, people have the, the freedom to choose which products they do and do not buy. And if prices are too high, they say no. And if prices are, are low, they, they buy, and they might even buy more. And they continue to buy as long as that product provides value. And they reveal their values with their purchases. And indeed, you know, I know how much I value Twizzlers because a, it's one of two things in my diet, Diet Coke and Twizzlers during the day, red wine at night, live a long life. So, and, and I know that I value it at $7 for a two pound traditional bag of strawberry twists. I mean, that's, that's the marginal value of, of Twizzlers. And the, the other thing we know is that if, if the producer can sell it for something that's more than it costs, they can make more money by making more of it. And we're gonna just keep making more until the profit opportunity goes away because marginal costs will eventually rise. And what we'll find out is that that price is going to simultaneously reflect the marginal cost of production and the marginal benefit, the valuation I place on it. And that's the core of, of, of how we explain 
the transmission of values through the economy and the economic benefits of the competitive model. I want to talk about the politics of it because I don't think it gets appreciated very well. If you think about a nation of 310 million people all operating in that fashion, what we will learn is that Twizzlers will have a marginal value for everyone who's buying them of seven bucks for that bag. Everybody, Alabamans, Californians, vegans, carnivores, I don't know where vegans are on the Twizzlers here. Anyway, um, atheists, pacifists, Lincecums, Scott here, and, and all of them, um, all will have exactly the same valuation of that. And that becomes the social value of Twizzlers. Like, you don't have to have a, uh, some sort of uh, committee to put together the social cost of Twizzlers. We know what it is. It's been revealed, and we all agree on it. We don't have to take a vote. We all agree. It has a, it has a value. We've revealed it, and that, and that value is the price. And that value is exactly matched by the cost of society producing it. That marginal cost is what does it cost the labor? What is it, what it take in the form of capital? What kind of materials go into it? There are no externalities to Twizzlers, so there's, there's no sort of funny extra math you have to do. Reliance on competitive markets has the tremendous advantage that we need no politics. None. We agree. It's practically Shangri-La. Because there's unanimity about how much we should spend on Twizzlers, how much labor and capital should go into Twizzlers, and it's simultaneously true for all the other important products, Diet Coke and red wine, and, and other unimportant products as well. But if you think about just walking into to, uh, the, the mini-mart attached to a gas station in the United States and the range of products that are available just there, it is mind-boggling what uh, a market economy can produce, and there is no way a political mechanism could make all those decisions. There isn't a legislature that we can design that can come to, to agreement on so many things. And the beauty of competitive markets is we don't need the politics. It's a, it's a, it's a, a phenomenal political mechanism. And it's often not appreciated for that. And when we stray from that, I think we, we start to, to appreciate the value of what free markets and individual liberties and the profit motive have delivered to our political discourse. So think about what happens when we don't have Twizzlers. Think about what happens in, in the standard market model when we have something of national importance that we all share, like national defense, and we've got to pick an amount of it. And some people are pacifists, and they, they want little or even negative amounts of it. Other people are, are quite worried about things. They want a lot of it. And now we have to have politics. We have to have a way to decide how much are we going to provide in the way of national defense that we will all simultaneously consume. So, so that's where the political mechanism ends enters, but, but think about how it enters. In that way of thinking, where you let markets do what they can do, let them um, uh, do it to the greatest extent possible, and only rely on government provision when you have to, everyone is agreeing that the politics are of necessity. We all know that we have different values. We have accepted the deal that says, there's going to be some disappointment in the political outcomes because all of these equally legitimate values have to enter in and not all can be uh, uh, satisfied simultaneously. Just, it's, it's not going to happen. And so I think one of the great virtues of the so-called neoclassical consensus, which was we're going to let um, uh, markets deliver everything they can 
And only places where there are market failures, where there are public goods and externalities and, and the kinds of things that markets don't handle as well, will we go to government mechanisms for provision. And those government mechanisms come with an automatic le legitimacy because the preferred way of doing it doesn't work. So you have to be doing it in the government and you accept the, the shortcomings that, that, that that produces. Not everyone can be made happy simultaneously and, and we have uh, the for great disagreement. But the, the, there's a legitimacy attached to that political debate because of the way that we've gotten to it. And that is, by and large, I think, you know, how the U.S. operated for a long, long time. And, and it produced, interestingly enough, not limited government for the sake of limited government, but limited government because there are only a limited number of things you had to have the government do. And as a result, that limited government was legitimate by its very design. It wasn't an arbitrary restriction on, on what the government could do. It was, it was the government fulfilling its role in society. And that, that, I thought that was an incredibly valuable thing. It was never perfect, believe me. So among the things you left out in reading my resume, shocking, unbelievable. Um, I worked in the White House in 1989 and um, at the Council of Economic Advisors as a staffer. And I had been at Columbia teaching public finance. And for those who aren't familiar with academic courses in public finance, they're all about what happens when markets fail, when there's an externality, and what clever things can you do to bring us back to optimal amounts of uh, production when there's externalities and, and public goods and things like that. So it's all about um, you got to be smart and fix markets and, and the government's the solution. And, and I went to the, the Bush White House and you know, th these were Republicans and they were prepared to intervene in ways that just blew my mind. I mean, I, mean, I would spend the entire time going, stop, no, leave it alone, it's fine. Don't, you don't need to do that. The market will take care of it by itself. But by the end, I felt like I was walking free to choose. I mean, it was just like the greatest experience of my life. So I know that the, the sort of idealized framework I just sort of walked through isn't literally the reality, but it was, but it was the, the underpinnings of, the, of a consensus on the way things were to work. And that consensus seems to have, I think, lo been lost largely because we haven't done the education on, on what it really was. Competitive markets were not just a way to get people rich. They were a legitimate political approach to providing goods and services in the right amount and allocating the activities in the economy. So I think that education has to continue. <coughs> Excuse me. My concern with um, the, these other approaches that, that have various labels um, uh, that, that get summarized cheaply under the Make America Great Again uh, label and, and, and sort of a, a nationalist perspective is um, they, they begin by substituting for that value discovery mechanism called competitive markets and just saying, this is what we value. This is what is important to this country. And now, We've already seen that out there in the world, there are going to be old, young men, women, Minnesotans, very strange, uh, Ohioans. I mean, an, a huge array of differences. This country should be celebrated for its differences. That's its, its most amazing characteristic. And there's going to be the notion that there's one legitimate set of values to pursue, which means by definition, the rest are not legitimate. And, if, and, and that immediately sets up a very bad political dynamic. Because if you're told you're illegitimate, you do not want to participate in the process that has declared your, your views illegitimate, and you do not respect the people 
who have declared your, your views illegitimate. And so the starting point for my concern with this really is this notion that there's a set of values. And there's the issue of who gets to pick? Like we have all these potentials. Who, whose values get to pick? Say those are the national values. I mean, this was the, uh, the, the, the scientific accomplishment by Ken Arrow when he won the Nobel Prize for the Arrow Impossibility Theorem that said there isn't any legitimate way to pick in a systemic fashion among all the tastes and preferences in, in a population. What you're going to end up with is a dictator. And what we see too often is the language and behavior of this way of thinking about the government's role in the economy is highly dictatorial and, um, and highly, as a result, frightening to those who were raised with a, a deep love of the freedoms and the, the democratic principles of this country. And, and so that, that set of, uh, of beliefs, I think, is a very dangerous way to do business. It leads to some other things that, that, that we, we see all the time and decry, but they're almost inevitable. Um, it is going to be the case that uh, any such approach to, to running a country is going to have a huge amount of industrial policy. The market signals aren't valuable. They're wrong. Like there's one set of values that's right, so the other one, so we got to direct, we got to override the market, so we have to pick what's going to happen. There's no longer a consensus. I mean, it's obvious anyone, anyone would pick a lot of Twizzler production. That's easy. But, but there is a question as to, you know, what will get um, approved in the market? And, we, and there's a tremendous amount of industrial policy that's going to flow straight out of this. And protectionism, which, which is obvious, but the, that overriding of the, of the market is, is inevitable in these systems. There is no respect for what it does. The market discovers values. The values have been discarded as unimportant in this framework, and so we, we don't need markets to do that. Um, that comes with it. Uh, a couple of other corollaries. Number one, you're not going to get um, efficient government policies. People like me don't like to distort prices. We don't like taxes distorting prices. We don't like subsidies distorting prices because that's distorting someone's values. We want those values displayed. The inefficiency of policy is going to be irrelevant. So, you know, any nationalist conservative approach is going to have the biggest deadweight loss triangles you've ever seen. They just don't care. This is a way in which the, I don't know what Jason said at lunch, but this is a way in which the left and the, right, the extreme rights at the moment are agreeing. I mean, they, they behave in exactly the same way. Second thing that will happen is there's no particular um, uh, cost then to taking the taxpayer's money. You need to, to override what the market's doing, so you need the money, you need industrial policies, and so you're going to have a very large government. There will be no natural stopping point for the government. There is no legitimate limited government in this framework, and it will get more inefficient. And as a result, it will be uh, a threat to any sort of sustained uh, rise in prosperity, any sustained growth in the, in the, the, in the economy. And that's inevitable given the, the foundations of how this, um, this uh, world thinks about things. So um, what comes with industrial policy and a lack of respect for taxpayer money? A lot of cronyism, help me out, I'll help you out. Cronyism always leads in the end to corruption and the, the, the government which may have been uh, seeking to represent the nation but in the end has no legitimate set of values to do so will harm the growth of that nation 
it will then also destroy itself with, with corruption and inefficiencies. And so um, uh, the good news here is there's a drinks reception after I'm done, so that's always good. Uh, number two, whatever this force is, however it arose, and, and you know, the, the notion that populism just isn't good for the populace hasn't yet been recognized, but that's the fact. Um, it, it has a, uh, a self-destructive piece to it that will, will end this um, uh, uh, path uh, on its own. And so, I, you know, I, I'm not happy to live through something like that. I'm not saying that it's all fine, but it's important to understand things for what they are. And, and I think the, that's what we have. So um, it's, it's a very bad idea for me to talk too long because there are drinks out there. There are some people who made the correct but, but uh, premature decision to, to not listen and go drink, and, and we're going to go join them. But my, my message today is really simple. Uh, th there is a political legitimacy to doing business with individual liberty and free markets, and it's an efficient way to do things. It has a lot of technical uh, uh, merit from an economics point of view, but it's, but it's political character is, I think, its most important feature. And it's, it's the thing to be understood, taught, and nurtured uh, through time. It does so very, very well. This recent movement has none of those things in my view. And it is a threat to our economy. And panel after panel can tell you about why the, the, this sort of um, interesting lean economy woman has turned out to be such a threat um, uh, to uh, the markets in the United States, why uh, some of these trade policies have been counterproductive and, and uh, self-defeating. Um, again and again and then, that's all going to be true. But the larger threat is it will destroy our politics. It delegitimizes de people in arbitrary fashion that is unacceptable in the United States. It undercuts its legitimacy in the process, and it is profoundly corrupt in the end. And I... Um, I'm sad to see even uh, the shadow of its specter uh, land in these shores. But I thank Ryan and Cato for the chance to, to say this. And uh, I thank all of you for your patience in listening. And I wish you nothing but a prosperous future. Thank you. We've got a good amount of time for questions. So they're going to be, oh, well, I'm on. They're going to be roving mics around, so we have got plenty of time for questions. Um, I'll take one from Russ at the front. Thank you. Um, you make a very compelling case, but I'm going to try to put my national conservative hat on and ask you a hard question, if you don't mind. Go for it. Um, so you described your model, your free market model, as idealized. Yes. And a national conservative would say, yes, exactly. It bears no relation whatsoever to our real economy. We've had Republican presidents and Republican governments for a very long time promising to return us to this free market. It's never happened, and we're starting to suspect that it's not going to. In the meantime, uh, what we've had, these big tech companies, so <laughs> always comes back to them, uh, they've s sort of developed a monopoly or an oligopoly over the marketplace of ideas. Um, asset managers on Wall Street, a handful of them, uh, exert an increasingly powerful influence over all of the publicly traded companies. And um, this combination has produced sort of uh, an environment where there's an ideological monoculture 
where um, if you are in a, a politically unfavored group or industry, they will cut off uh, capital flows to you. Um, they might take your PayPal account away. Um, essentially, um, they are um, a de facto um, regime in partnership with the federal government, and that this new reality is such a threat to freedom that we have to sort of accept it instead of trying to go back to this uh, Reaganite vision of free markets. So how would you respond to that? So there are a couple things about that vision that, that I think are worth thinking hard about. Uh, the first is that it's ultimately an empirical question as to whether there is disproportionate market power in the hands of tech companies or uh, asset managers or, 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 or in general. And, um, and we hear this a lot, we, we do. Um, I will uh, commend to you the data, um, which is that we collect a lot of data on, in the United States, a census of manufacturers, census of retailers, uh, we do an enormous amount of um, data collection. And um, my colleague, uh, Fred Ashton, collected all of the data back to 2002, up to 2017, the most recent uh, such. They do them every five years. And if you do, say, four firm concentration ratios, the, the fraction of the, the revenue earned by top four firms, or almost any metric, and you look industry by industry over that time period, you will find no increase in concentration in the United States economy. It's not a fact. So the factual assertion that the US is now riddled with monopolies who are dictating to consumers either was true in 2002 or isn't true now, but it, nothing has changed. And, and the, the way we talk about it has changed and the policies we're proposing have changed, but the data haven't changed. And so that, that makes me question the diagnosis and, 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 and uh, um, uh, proposed solution. Second thing is, among pro proposed solutions, yeah, we've never gotten uh, the federal government uh, to the, the scale scope and, uh, that I would prefer. That's a reality. There are differences out there, which I, I think it's important for us to respect. Um, but when we find market power, it is usually the result of the government. If, if you want to find monopoly power in the, in the, um, in the U.S. economy, you're going to find some government regulation. You're going to find some, uh, some place where in, in the interests of someone in the private sector and the government coincide, and they're erecting barriers to entry. So the number one thing to do is not to pay any attention to the incumbents, not to focus your fire on them, not to say what's good and bad about them. Don't even learn their names. Kill them. Allow entry and let them fail. The most important thing America does is it lets things fail. That's what we do better than anyone else. And if you stop letting things fail, you stop having a market economy. And so it, it, the solution to all of this stuff is not dictating behavior of incumbents. The solution is to make sure the incumbents don't have a choice but to listen to the customers or they're gone. Great, uh, next question. Um, uh, yes, we'll go. On that side, um, sorry, got the mics running around. Can we go over here? There's a, I was just kidding. Uh, thank you. <laughs> um, I have a question on, what's your thoughts on cryptocurrency, the regulation of cryptocurrency, 
the SEC with Gensler and what he's saying? Because it seems like the ultimate monopoly in that case is the government, and it's the currency. They own that. And no one protects their monopoly probably more than a government. So um, I, I am first and foremost not a, uh, a cryptocurrency expert, and I want to be really honest about that. That's not going to stop me from answering. <laughs> okay. So uh, now, as of this moment, there is nothing that is genuinely a cryptocurrency. So, so if you sort of look at standard definitions of money, currency, store of value, unit of measure, n nothing, general acceptability, all that uh, uh, for transactions, none of them fit this. So cryptos are at the moment a boutique asset class that have some highly idiosyncratic risks, um, ranging from those that appeal to people who wanted to bet on the NFL when they weren't playing to, to very sophisticated investors. Um, uh, and, and if you look at the data, most of the big money appears to be very sophisticated investors. So that makes me think that at the moment, this isn't a particular threat, right? These are, these are well-heeled, knowledgeable investors using a different set of highly idiosyncratic risks to um, uh, add some potential uh, return to their portfolios. So as a consumer protection matter, it doesn't seem like a huge deal yet. Could be, they become more broadly used. Uh, and, and they're not held in any significant way on any financial, systemically important financial institution's balance sheet. They're, they're nothing like the evil of a, of a subprime mortgage, uh, you know, a decade and a half ago. So, so I, I think they're, I mean, and, and, you know, Kim Kardashian cares, so we, of course we should care, but, um, but, but I, don't, I don't think they're a big economic issue right now. There, there's more chatter about it than there's substance. Nigel. Uh, Nigel Ashford, Institute of Humane Studies, George Mason University. Young people appear to have rejected free markets. Yes. Why do you think that is, and what could be done to reverse it? Uh, it's my fault. Um, <laughs> uh, I, 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 I honestly, I, I think there's, um, uh, there has been a lack of education, public education about what are market economies, what are their virtues, and, and what are their, their fails, failures? I mean, they're not perfect. There's no question about that. Um, and, and because we weren't explaining how they worked, all we were saying is they work. Markets work. And so um, my son, um, uh, today's his birthday, as it turns out. He's uh, 37 years old. So you, you roll the clock back. He's in this, this sort of very formative part of his life when the uh, uh, financial crisis, Great Recession hits. I'm on the campaign chair with John McCain, and I tell him to say things like the, the fundamentals are sound, we'll, be, we'll get through this. And they look around and they think, okay, these people are nuts. Fundamentals are not sound. Everything in the world is falling apart. Then they say markets work. That stock market thing isn't working. The bond market thing isn't working. Housing market didn't work. And so we did a, a terrible job of, of educating a generation in the sources of their prosperity. Um, we took it for granted. We didn't uh, educate them, and we're paying the price for it. I, I, really, I believe that to be true. We've heard a lot today of uh, various kind of underlying gripes or, or, or problems that national conservatism purports to be responding to, whether it's the hollowing out of, suppose, hollowing out of the manufacturing sector, uh, regulators in the federal government taking 
issues like climate change much more seriously than the opioid epidemic and a, and a range of other things that uh, Casey Mulligan mentioned. If we're being the most charitable, where do you th see genuine gripes with how government policy perhaps might have let down people who um, uh, national conservatives are trying to appeal to? So I think there's a, you know, as, as a lifelong Republican and conservative, I think uh, we offered nothing to a large swath of uh, lower to middle class Americans in a lot of rural places whose economic prospects had disappeared. We offered them nothing in the way of uh, an alternative to just um, uh, being, being forgotten. And that, that was wrong. And um, uh, it's a lesson that, that I take to heart deeply. Um, so, can you hear? Yeah, okay. So I, th I think there was that, I, I really do. Um, you know, the early waves of this were, were clearly visible to me in 2007 in the Republican primaries. I didn't fully understand it. Um, and, but but it, it it was there already, and um, and and, and the and, and the, the sort of um, strength of that population grew political strength grew over time because they 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 deserved a better deal. We didn't we did, we left them behind, and and I think that was wrong. Um, there's a second piece which is which is just sort of genuinely uh, the functioning of government. Um, you know, I'm, I've now been here. 20 odd years, I'm a, 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 a certified swamper. And um, the, the, the federal government has, has ossified in a way that's incredibly uh, frustrating, I think, to everybody and, and, and troubling to me. So in the late uh, 80s and in the early 90s, the information uh, technologies uh, and communication technologies revolution uh, created this phenomenal uh, white-collar job losses on the, on the cover of all the magazines because a whole layer of middle management basically to take the data from the retail guys, write memos about it, and give it to their uh, superiors. And these dashboards and, and information systems made them obsolete. The, the management could get it straight from the retail, and that whole layer of, uh, of employment went away. It was white-collar um, job loss. It was very frightening to people. The federal government never did that. So we now have a federal government that has a gazillion paper pushers who are writing memos for their new political superiors. And we actually have terrible retail service in the federal government. So we, we never reinvented government in the way that we should have um, to deliver government services and, and do things. And so that's a, that's a problem in every agency that needs to be thought about. And the opportunity to do it comes with the retirement of the baby boom generation and, and a, a whole uh, cohort of, of federal agency employees. On top of that has turned this phenomenon, and this is the, the real breakdown, the Congress has on a regular basis ceded its authorities to the administration. An administration, you know, they, they come in, they don't really know anything about the government, and they, they, they have to cede authority to the, the civil servants. And it's a recipe for disaster, because you, you've now given up the democratic representation of ideas that's in the Congress, that's who we elected, to people who were there because they like that topic. It's really, it's a real problem. And, and I'm sympathetic to people who want to fix that, that need fixed. Yeah, when you put together the once in a decade or once in a century um, 
you know, uh, crises like pandemics on top of that dysfunction. It's a it's a recipe for all sorts of uh, dangerous uh, ideologies. So we've got time for a few more questions. Uh, I'm going to try and get people who haven't asked a question so far today. So I think this gentleman here in the middle. So I get the people who have been saving their hard questions? Exactly, yeah. Save the best till last. <laughs> I do. Uh, thank you for a wonderful presentation. Could you just, just tilt? Yeah, that's it. Scream at that's it. it. OK. <laughs> thank you for a wonderful presentation. Uh, my question, uh, the Fed, do you think it's do you think the Fed is basically damaged free market functioning, creating these vast financial bubbles and rescuing them with uh, starting the cycle all over again with massive money creation? So I think the Fed has been less than perfect. Um, I, I don't know if I want to characterize it in quite that apocalyptic of terms, but um, It has been the case that the world has changed on us, and, and I don't think we recognize it. When I was trained in economics between 80 and 84, um, in the, and in the 20th century, business cycles were income events. They were called the inventory cycle. That was equivalently, the, because the notion was, you know, the inventory start piling up, you dial back on production, you lay some people off, they don't have any money, they don't spend as much, you get the sort of downward spiral, and then ultimately the shelves are bare and you gotta do some production, you get the reverse upward virtuous cycle, and, and these were income flows. And we thought about um, mitigating business cycles from an income flow point of view, and um, UI and discretionary tax cuts and public works all fell into that. And, and then without letting us know, uh, business cycles decided to change, and, and we had the dot-com bubble burst, and we got a mild recession in 2001, 2002. That was seven trillion dollars of equity wealth lost. But a financial market event hit, hammers the um, the real economy, and then the financial crisis, Great Recession. Again, housing bubble is about seven trillion. It's all debt, so it's highly levered. Goes through the the entire financial system in, in ways that weren't transparent. You get an enormous recession, and our fiscal tools aren't changed, so we don't know how to how to fight the, the business cycle caused by a financial event. And so we so we sort of had to cede cede it to the Fed to do full employment, price stability, and then financial stability. We like financial stability because those things keep falling down. We're going to have a recession, so don't let them fall down. And and that it gets them into a different place where they're they're worried about not letting things fail. Right? We get you get to that. Um, they're making up the policies, quantitative easing and um, forward guidance and all these this menu of things that we've seen recently on the fly, no particular way to uh, judge their effectiveness. And so we find ourselves where we are now. I mean, right now, they are trimming their portfolio, which they put expanded by $5 trillion in the pandemic. Um, and they've never done that before. And we have no idea what the impact's going to be. I mean, how much financial tightening will we get out of that? So what's the fallout going to be across various sectors of the economy? We don't know. So I think there's good reason to be concerned about, A, how much we've relied on the Fed, uh, and B, their, their capacity, even a well-intentioned Fed, forget whether they, they don't have the right uh, objectives, even, even if they have the right objectives, they're in a really hard position right now. And, and I'm, I'm worried about how it plays out. OK, 
Okay, next question. Uh, this gentleman here at the front. There's a microphone coming to you. From the things that you've laid out here, what do you think would be some next steps to make things better? I, I'm a, a, a big believer in public education. Um, I mean, the truth is I've lived my adult life uh, on the, the notion that better informed policymakers will make better decisions. There's no empirical evidence that's true, but I, I'm staying at it. <laughs> um, but I, I really think we need some public education. And I'm, I'm deeply concerned about the character of, say, presidential uh, elections and what's going on. You know, it's not like I was in the best campaign ever. I can tell you lots of reasons why I wasn't. But, but 2008, th there were serious tax plans. There were serious health plans. I mean, there were serious identification of, of national problems and ways that they should be dealt with. That got thinner in 12. It was non-existent in 16. It was non-existent in, in 2020. Um, we're not having a debate about the issues. And those are America's teachable moments. That's when Americans who are busy doing things that are far more important, like raising their families and, and going to work and going to church, and, and that's when they stop and say, okay, what do the people who are going to run the show think is, is a, an important problem, and what should we do about it? Th those are the teachable moments. The, it, there just hasn't been anything on that. I mean, the, the panel here is talking about the, the budget problem. If you think about it, my old boss, George W. Bush, his statement on budgets was essentially, um, we have to win the war against global terrorism at all costs. Uh, the Obama administration said for eight straight years, there's nothing wrong with the federal budget. It can't be fixed by having the rich pay their fair share. The Trump administration said nothing. And so for the 21st century, the, the most important public educator has not said to the American people, we have a problem. The problem is the federal budget, and it is threatening your future. That's a fact. No one's told them. So if you go to fix it and you, and you go to you know change social security or something like that, it's going to be viewed as an ad hominem attack with no foundation because they haven't been told there's a problem that needs fixed here. And I think so. That's that's the number one thing for me. I mean, you got to got to level with people about the problems or you can't fix them. And and that 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 truth telling just hasn't occurred. And so that, I I hope that that begins to happen. And on that optimistic note, we're going to. Uh, uh, close proceedings today. So, Doug, thank you so much you. for your time. We've really appreciated it. Thank you.